I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert, episode 63 for June 2017. I'm Duncan, and in 1963, the second and my personal favourite James Bond film was released from Russia with Love. It has an interesting JFK connection because in 1960, the president placed a novel, which is also my favourite Bond novel, on his all-time top ten books. And uh, this actually led to United Artists taking the film property as a serious potential and undoubtedly helped get the series made. And for those who might not have seen it, uh, From Rush With Love is a wonderful piece of Cold War espionage containing Sean Connery at his coolest and an outstanding performance from Robert Shaw as the imposing villain Red Grant, who has my favourite showdown of any henchman versus Bond in the series aboard the Orient Express. Uh, but it's also said to be one of the final films that JFK saw before his death. That is fa- genuinely fascinating. I did yeah. not know that. It's uh, probably my favourite Bond as well. Yeah. It's just uh, raw and gritty, and he does actual spy work, and you yeah, know, and that fight, like you say, just feels really brutal. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I didn't know that. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Uh, look, I don't have as much to say as Duncan about 1963, but it is the year of the haunting. One of the truly great, great ghost stories. So, Simon, what have you been watching? Right, this month I had like this extensive rant prepared all about everything wrong with Alien Covenant. Uh, it was a goodish rant as well, I felt. Uh, carefully argued, backed up by sound reasoning. But then I saw The Mummy. Oh! And that means there's only one film I can talk about. Yes, after months of chatter, mostly by me, and years of half-hearted attempts to create a monstrous cinematic universe of universal cinematic monsters, they finally pulled the trigger, fully embracing this, this collective world of creatures watched over by Prodigium, the monster-tracking agency run by one Dr. Jekyll. And already the so-called Dark Universe appears dead on arrival. Uh, Because The Mummy is a dud. Uh, A dead-in-the-water franchise starter, cynical and awkward, confused and frequently dull. It's blessed with a miscast Tom Cruise. Uh, A man in his 50s, let's remember, who appears to be playing a, I don't know, soldier. Soldier of fortune? Uh, Something. Who knows? That should have been played by a man far younger. Far younger. Cruz looks great for his age, obviously, and he Peter Pans it as hard as he can, but by Xenu, it's not enough. <laughs> he romances two beautiful women in this film, both more than 20 years younger than him. At this point, the eeriest piece of mummification in The Mummy is the one that allows Cruz to get away with this shtick. And yet, he's one of the saving graces of this film, eking out what little joy and also what little pathos the model characterization affords him. Just imagine how badly a lesser movie star would have drowned in this material. Uh, Likewise, Russell Crowe is a bit of a boon, tasked with the mandatory opening narration, then somehow trudging manfully through a swamp of second-act exposition, setting up a dark universe that the smart money says will now remain in the dark. Crowe makes the best of a terrible hand he's been dealt. I can't say he saves the film. That would be way too much of a stretch, you know. (laughs) But again, I try to imagine what a lesser actor would have done with this dialogue, and it makes me shudder. Also, he gets to turn into Mr. Hyde and inexplicably and kind of wonderfully hammily gets a Cockney accent when he does. <laughs> uh, it makes no sense and it's very silly. But boy, I tell you, right then it felt like exactly what this film needed. Mm-hmm. Because outside of these two stars, The Mummy is a colossal jip. It steals shamelessly from an American werewolf in London with its decomposing ghostly sidekick offering the hero advice. 
and has the second act in which the entire Loki imprisoned on helicarrier sequence from the Avengers is just repurposed, complete with Jekyll losing his cool, hulking out and providing all the distraction the villain needs to escape and grab the Tesseract. I mean, the dagger of set. <laughs> and that second act is a real drag as well. There's so much exposition, so much set up for a franchise which, ah, I just, I just feel it's not going to follow. Uh, and, and yet my first thoughts after I saw The Mummy was, ah, better than I expected. But then I expected the bottom of the barrel, not the sloppy dregs I found floating there. Because it has a couple of moments, a nutty plane crash already ruined for us in the trailers, an underwater scene with reanimated Knight Templars, with, which look gorgeous, and probably one points of me feeling like a nod to the cult Spanish zombie film Tombs of the Blind Dead. Although I may be the only person in any audience who felt that way, so that's kind of a limited, a fairly slim marketing <laughs> quadrant, you know? Yeah, you were People like, there, you were there cheering, it. yes! Tombs of the Blind Dead, <laughs> yeah. thank you. Uh, and there is a nice early scene in a misty English churchyard that has the mummy recruiting some zombified followers who move in a stilted, jerky, stop-motion style. That looks kind of delightful. Uh, that's never used again. And that, folks, is it. That's as good as it gets. And perhaps it was also helped, m- m- my uh, better-than-expected, it was also helped by the fact that the mummy isn't the worst blockbuster I've seen this year, or even in the last few months. Right. It's better than The Fate of the Furious, I felt. Better than Alien Covenant, I'm mm-hmm. going to say. Uh, and somewhere on a par with the latest Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean, which gets uh, a, t- a tick for me solely for being not the previous Pirates of the Caribbean film, yeah. which was the slackest entry in the series, I felt. But but The Mummy's not a good film. Not even close. Yeah, it says a lot for uh, state of blockbusters at the moment. Yeah, I think that's the main thing, actually. Yeah, yeah that's my main takeout from mm. this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, you saved me from watching that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, wait till it's on free to air TV yeah. with ads and then watch it. Um, what, what about you? What have you been watching? Well, I went to see the Aliens sixth instalment or the eighth, if you count uh, the two Alien versus Predator films. Yep. Alien Covenant. Some visual splendor aside, it has one almighty strength, and that's Michael Fassbender. Mm-hmm. He's so good that it's little surprise that the best dramatic scene of the entire film is Fassbender acting opposite himself in a homoerotic seduction of himself, (laughs) which is just awesome. Um, The character of David is an intriguing and gripping one. And it's amazing that after Ripley, the series has managed to find such a watchable character to hang continued episodes on. All the better because he is more an antagonist, uh, which creates problems for any protagonist he appears opposite, um, be it Numi Rapace or Catherine Waterson, because they're kind of like merely Ripley replacements, um, you know, watered down versions, no less. Right. While David enters the realm of many great science fiction characters like Hal in 2001 or Roy Batty in Blade Runner by being like a synthetic creation that are more interesting and relatable than the human characters in the story. Mm. The problem is that the narrative surrounding David is rehashed and predictable and Ridley Scott creates few scares. His characters act idiotically and because Alien came out in 1979, I find it a problem to be 38 years ahead of our characters. Mm-hmm. Um, as you've stated in the last podcast watching the trailer, it's just like another sap curiously leans over an alien egg as it opens. Yeah. Um, but also the cinematic language that Scott communicates with in Covenant is regressive, and it's just like horror film 101. Uh, like a person goes off by themselves and stands by a water pool bathing, slowly turning around when they hear a noise. Later, a person follows a character they don't trust into a shadowy underground and is killed. Um, it even has characters die due to their adherence to vices. One character, because he needs to smoke. Another couple have sex in a shower and die. 
I mean, it's bordering on parody. It's the sort of thing that would never happen in an alien film, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, you know? That that feels like uh, that's a Friday the 13th moment. Uh, completely. And, and and that's so Friday the 13th that it's, it's distracting. Yeah. Which says a lot for, uh, you know, <laughs> a science fiction film about aliens that burst out of people's chests that that's the part that throws you out of, you know, right. off kilter. Yeah. Is, and, and, and it's just that cinematic language, like you say. Not just Friday the 13th, but it's every slasher film that's ever been made since yeah. 1978. So it, oh, it, that that drove me wild. Um, not to mention just like a last-minute twist that's so obvious it defies belief. I don't even know that you can call that a twist, I have to feel. I, I mean, you're seeing as there is an audience knowing that that's the twist that's going to happen. Yeah. And you just, the only tension is when do they pull the trigger on yeah. it because that's what I mean. everyone can see it. Yeah. I, I find in all of this, I find that the alien as a threat is lost. Mm-hmm. Like, and, and as a as an entity, it's just it's just an afterthought. And now I'm not certain of the future of the Alien series. It, it seems that it isn't a full stop as far as the filmmakers are concerned, but I think it might be for me. And I've always loved the Alien series. The first two are among my favourite films. The Alien quadrilogy is one of my favourite box sets ever released. But the excitement I felt for Prometheus was sky high, and even my reaction afterward was kind of me trying to convince myself it was still of a high quality. Yeah, yeah. Um, but Covenant during it never raised my pulse, you know? Like, it just... There's one or two kind of icky moments, but there's no scares. There's no progression of any kind of story. And, like, Fassbender is outstanding in it. Um, And I really like the beginning, and it's beautifully shot, and, um, you know, some of it filmed in New Zealand and stuff. And and that stuff, it looks great. But just... As you learn with Prometheus, that's not enough. Oh, look, unsurprisingly, I agree with everything you're saying. It's, It's like... Scott has no time to devote to the reason we're here. Yeah. The star attraction is the alien and he just doesn't have time. He doesn't have time to build tension. Mm. So the only trick he's got is gore, which is amazing to me. I mean, this is a the original alien, of course, is so nerve wracking. Mm. It is so tense. And there's no time for it in this film. He just mm. doesn't build to anything. Things just explode. The alien implants its egg, the egg explodes out of your body, and then it's a full grown six foot engine mm. of destruction in no time at all. Mm. I mean, the alien life cycle's been cut down so much because the film needs it to. Yeah. It needs to build up to something. And and it just doesn't work for me. Uh, I just can't believe that this is where we're at with this film. Yeah. And it, it, I've come to realise Covenant is kind of the Force Awakens of the Alien franchise, you know? A film which many will welcome, and I've seen this happening, mm. with open arms as a return to form. Mm. Um, a film which returns a franchise to what we feel it should be after the shaky diversion of Prometheus. But uh, I'm not sure, man. It's like, like like The Force Awakens. It's also a greatest hits film that doesn't have the passion or the originality of the best of the series. Um, perhaps if you're really new and you've never seen an alien film before in your life, this might be entertaining enough. But, mm. you know, we've been around long enough. Like you say, we've watched the best of the series and yeah. we know how disappointing this is. Yeah. And uh, I still think, and I mean, it's, it's tough to say because, you know, like you say, we've lived with it our whole lives. But I still think if you chucked Alien on to a modern audience... I, I don't think they would sit there and go, oh, look, it's made in the 70s. I think they would be on the edge of their seat. It's a great you film. Know? I think it holds up. Yeah, yeah. totally. And so, you know, this, it's not like, oh, <clears throat> we need to, you know, redo this for a modern audience. It's yeah. like, no, there's no tension here. Yeah. That's the big problem is that there isn't those, um, you know, kind of lovely moments, which Scott did. I mean, it's crazy to think that we're talking about Ridley Scott when he did Alien. Mm, yeah, know? yeah, yeah. You know, I could understand if this was like, 40 years later, and it was some, you know, guy who was 30 years younger than Ridley Scott. Yeah, yeah. But it's not. No. So, yeah. And everyone's talking about how beautiful it is, and it's like, I could care less because, you know, 
we know Ridley Scott can make an attractive film. He always has. All of his films look pretty, you know? Yeah. I knew the scroll of thought could bring me back to life. I dared the god's anger and stole it. I murmured the spell that raises the dead. They broke in upon me and found me doing an unholy thing. So, Duncan, what's the news? Well, breaking and unexpected news, Terry Gilliam finally finishes shooting The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. It may well be a sign of the coming apocalypse, but the Monty Python director has been trying to get the film made for close to 20 years, uh, with one abortive attempt memorably captured in glorious detail with the documentary Lost in La Mancha. A lead actor who had spent seven months learning English just for the role suffers an injury preventing him from fulfilling his part. Vital locations experience flash floods, changing the colour of the cliffs, Mm. so new footage wouldn't match previous shot material. Most would have taken it as a sign from God, or at least found it uh, one step too far mentally to deal with. Uh, But Gilliam has never given up, saying even as late as last year, I will be dead before the film is. (laughs) Uh, And um, so he's finished. He's finally finished filming. And and, uh, it stars uh, Jonathan Price, uh, Olga Kurielenko, and Adam Driver. Yeah, well, I just hope that the edit suite doesn't burn down. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You would not want to be in there, eh? No. uh, You'd be like um, a jet engine, like the Donnie Darko, just a jet engine plane falling on top of the... This is like the most cursed <laughs> film ever. And yeah, yeah. I'm amazed that he's got through the production. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, you know, obviously Johnny Depp was in and out. John Hurt was in and out as well and, of course, passed away. Yeah, and then Michael Palin was going to play Quixote. Mm. Uh, Robert Duvall at one point said that he was going to be Quixote. And then finally, Jonathan Price, I think, had another role. Yeah. Palin dropped out and Price was in it. And then Gilliam ended up giving him the role. Right. But there's just this great photo of Price looking, you know, like... You know, kind of like King Lear or something. Yeah, you know, and, and and Gilliam still looking quite relatively young. I mean, the guy must be in the seventies, rel- looking relatively, you know, like animated and happy. Yeah. And you're like, man, yeah. go get him, Gilliam. Yeah, oh, totally. It's just, you know, it'll be a passing curiosity. But good on you for doing this kind of. Oh, look! I look forward to seeing it. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. All right. Well, gimme, gimme, gimme a sequel to Mamma Mia. <laughs> or if you've ever heard me talk about this film before, please don't give me the sequel to this horrible 2008 hit. That has just been confirmed because I hated this film. Hated it. <laughs> hated the weak story. Hated the weak singing and dancing. By actors who could do neither of these things well. And in Pierce Brosnan's case, just horribly. Uh, nonetheless, Mamma Mia, Here We Go Again, a title the equivalent of a shrug and a roll of the eyes while guiltily pocketing the millions this film will make, will be here next year. Everyone is back. So, yeah, looks like we'll get to hear Brosnan, Skarsgård, and Firth butcher some more ABBA songs. <laughs> Which leads me to the one big question I have about this film. How many ABBA hits are left to shove into the plot? Mm. Uh, will they need to write in a new character named Fernando? Uh, you know? yeah. Will there be a Napoleonic War recreation scene? Uh, can they set it at New Year's Eve so they can sing Happy New Year? I don't know. I almost want to watch the film to find out. But, but nothing can actually make me do that. <laughs> well, of course, the thing is that uh, it was a box office smash, right? Huge. It was huge. So, you know, um, the winner takes it all, you know? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh. Did they use that yeah, song in there? <laughs> Did they yeah, use they already the have original. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, yeah it was I'm sorry. Movie. I'm really sorry for that. No, 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 no. It was a good call. <laughs> I would have said it if you didn't, if I if I'd have thought of it. Now, there's a couple of uh, stories here that we were talking about li- in the last couple of months. And one was um, uh, to do with uh, Netflix and yeah. the Cannes Film Festival. Yeah. So now, two of Korea's largest cinema chains refused to release Okja. A Korean film starring some big names like Jake Gyllenhaal and Tilda Swinton. Yeah. 
And it is one of the Netflix movies that Cannes wanted to eject from competition because it hadn't had a cinematic release. Yeah. Um, but this is the very reason that the cinema chains Jeeve and Lotte didn't want to show the film because it had already been released on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, now, it walks the streaming site into an awkward standoff for future projects because two of the three largest Korean cinema chains will ask for a clause to be implemented. That means the film will have to have a buffer period of three weeks between initial cinematic release and online releases. I think that's fair enough, don't you? I think yeah. that's, what, what, you know, what do you expect? Yeah. And, and what is Netflix really going to lose from that? I'm not too sure. No, nothing, I don't think. Yeah. Um, so if, if anything, it should g- gain the film some uh, word of mouth. Yeah, yeah. You know, I would yeah. hope. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the Netflix guys were, like, really um, kind of combative about the whole Khan's thing. Right. And they were saying, oh, well, we love it. You know, just the whole, people are talking about us, so. Yeah. And, it, and in a weird way, that's what the, what they need. Yeah. Um, just people talking. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's interesting to see that still going on. Yeah, yeah. Well it's just a further shifting of the of the goalposts as far as cinema goes, cinema releases. Yeah. Look, a friend of the show, Darren Bevan, drew my attention to a piece of news this month that I I was actually aware of but hadn't really engaged with. And I want to thank him for that because now it's my favourite thing. And that's the Babadook queer icon. Uh recently Netflix filed the exceptional Aussie horror flick, The Babadook, under its LBTQA section. Uh, I guess because nothing says queer movie like a towering, terrifying creature in a black top hat haunting a single mother in a rundown suburban home. But the internet, being an often awful, sometimes brilliant thing, embraced the newly outed Babadook uh, in the most wonderful way possible. Now, there's a chance that this was, in fact, a bit of Photoshop playfulness, that Netflix did not, in fact, out the pop-up book Beastie. After all, there was a playful Tumblr blog from 2016 that postulated a Bubba discourse on the Babadook status as a gay icon, uh, pointing out that the B in LGBTA actually stands for Babadook. <laughs> but regardless, that Netflix screen cap really set the rainbow-coloured ball rolling. But as Vox magazine points out, to truly exist on the internet, you need to be memed. And oh, how this has been memed. <laughs> the Babadook has been photoshopped into gay pride rallies, placed in front of rainbow flags, and dressed up for appearances on RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, and so now, here we are, June 2017, Gay Pride Month, and something tells me we may be at peak gay about Babadook. Uh, so enjoy it while it lasts, folks. I have a feeling this wonderfully silly meme will soon pass. Yeah, but uh, um, anything that draws more eyes to Babadook is a good thing. Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So all these people will be like, what is this going? You yeah, know, yeah. Oh, I have to sit down and watch it. Yeah, it's a really great film. Yeah. Uh, but I just find there's something so odd about <laughs> a queer icon. Uh, I love the idea of it. You know? Yeah. <laughs> And finally for me, as if US moviegoers have been listening to our podcast, they've backed up what we spoke about last month when we questioned what the future of movies would look like by reflecting that 2016 had the lowest number of ticket sales since the 1920s. And so the usually stellar showing at the momentous Memorial Day weekend in the US has been the poorest in nearly 20 years. Uh, in fact, you have to go back to 1999 when the monolithic presence of Phantom Menace absorbed that weekend's audience. Uh, Baywatch and the Pirates of the Caribbean 5 were thought to be fairly invincible because they're essentially sequels or rebrands, which kind of means they're critic-proof. Um, but that's who are predictably being blamed for the outcome, those pesky critics and that evil hive mind that I spoke about, Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, but since then, and encouragingly, Wonder Woman earned in one week twice the amount that Baywatch managed in two. 
while Cruises the Mummy, which you spoke about, has been one of the Cruises lowest earning films and its opening weekend sits below every other Mummy film ever released, including the Scorpion King spin-off. So what I take from this, get Brendan Fraser back because clearly he's a bigger box office draw. Yeah, I'm sure Brendan Fraser's hoping <laughs> that as well. <laughs> uh, yeah, I've had so many discussions too just uh, with people who talking about Mummy and they go, yeah, I really like the original. And I just have to nod <laughs> and smile and agree with them, thinking, yeah. we're thinking different films here, aren't we, man? <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I, I, thank, uh, I thank you for not mentioning the fact that Ghost in the Shell flopped heavily because we were having a discussion about that. And um, you were like saying, ah, I just don't think it'll work. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I think she's a drawer. And uh, I'm clearly completely wrong. So <laughs> thanks for not rubbing my face in that. But um, yeah, Baywatch has been, yeah, yeah. Just a shocking catastrophe. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and so is the Mummy, and so is, and so is King Arthur. Oh, King Arthur particularly. Yeah, but I mean, King, King Arthur bombed completely. And, yeah, um, yeah. And, and like the Mummy, that was predicted to be part of a a universe of films. Yeah, and I mean, I, with the Mummy, you kind of got Cruise, you've got uh, the Mummy, which you know, I mean, we're kind of making fun of it, but it, it did have what four, like three movies and a spin-off. So you know, mm. there's there's enough history in there. To yeah. Suggest it. But King Arthur was just like I saw that trailer and was like, well, I don't know. No, the I trailer mean, looked you know, awful to me. Well, you got you got the Sons of Anarchy, you got Guy Ritchie, you got Jude Law as a back guy. I just like, I mean, you know, casting Jude Law. Just, you know, as much as I like Jude Law in certain films, you know, he is not a box office draw. Yeah, and, you know. <laughs> yeah, totally. But it's an interesting state of affairs that we're in with the um, modern blockbuster, uh, and there's some kind of um, Schadenfreude to some extent with some of these um, films to kind of enjoy seeing them collapse. Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, some but of them deserve it. Some of them deserve it. So it is going to make people uh, go away and think about things. It's also just that thing, like we're saying, you know, it's, it's morphing what, what, what is expected of the box office. Yeah. Contemplate this on the tree of woe. And welcome to the tree of woe, one of our favourite parts of the show where we get to uh, grab something that's really annoyed us in the month of film going and uh, make it suffer under the hot sun and the hungry buzzards on the tree of woe. So, Duncan, um, what's got onto your... Well, despite all of the um, just magnitude of awful blockbusters, there's actually one thing that's got under my skin. And um, Look, Woody Allen once said, I don't wish to achieve immortality through my art. I wish to achieve it by never dying. Mm. Uh, but the Grim Reaper comes for us all. But one person I wish he hadn't claimed was Sir Roger Moore. As any of you long-time listeners know, I'm a Bond tragic. And at 89 years old, you'd think the man had a good run. But there was something we as Bond fans didn't want to give away. It's almost selfish. But he is the first Bond to die. For over 50 years, we've had all six actors present. Look, Roger Moore wasn't my favourite Bond. Connery was dangerous. Timothy Dalton more a representative of the literary Bond. Daniel Craig is hard as nails. I spoke to a friend who told me that his young son was gutted because his boy had been watching all the Bond films and he gravitated towards the Moore films. And that kind of generational discovery is exciting. It made me realise that Roger Moore was always the people's Bond. He flew the flag for Bond was always proud of his association with 007. While the other actors seemed kind of uneasy with their roles in the series or their tenures ended acrimoniously, Moore was always the happiest to talk Bond, the only actor to do Blu-ray commentaries, the only one to write multiple books about Bond, do talking tours, greet every fan, and constantly crack jokes at his own expense. And certainly the only one to do a mini-documentary celebrating 25 years of Bond, including promoting his successor. Let me just say, Connery wouldn't have done that. Connery did Bond as most people would for himself. But in the days following Sir Roger's passing, the stories that came out were overflowing with humour, style, 
graciousness and self-deprecation. He did such great work as a UNICEF ambassador and for the animals and for James Bond. And he was the last of the gentleman actors. There is no David Niven and now there is no Roger Moore. And for that reason, I'd like to nail the Grim Reaper to the Tree of oh, Life. Man, that's a beautiful Tree of Life. Yeah, it's just, uh, it's just there's something about him um, that I really, I, I never anticipated. Because I was, Connery is my Bond. Mm. You know, he, he's the one I like. And Timothy Dolan was the one who kind of was there when I got into him. That was the living mm. daylights I went and saw. But I remember seeing Happy Anniversary 007, which was released in 1987. It was on TV. And that was the thing, because it was like, all these mini clips of James Bond, and I had no, I'd only seen A View to a Kill, I think, at that point, which again, Roger Moore film, his final film was the first one I saw, I think, on VHS. Yeah. Um, and I was like, who is this? You know, who are all these people? But that was presented by Roger Moore, and that was after he had left. And uh, he was just fantastic. And um, well, like I say, that real gentleman kind of character, and everything you hear about him, um, everyone just loved him. And um, yeah. I, I think there's more, you know, with Connery, there's a bit of, you know. A bit of niggle. There's a bit of niggle, and he, he, he's he got some unlikable elements to his character, you know, as a, as a person. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, whereas Roger Moore is just class right yeah, across the board. absolutely. He's my first Bond, so he's the first Bond I saw. Yeah. Um, and for a while, that was how I saw Bond. And, and like you, you know, um, I mean, I'm not the big fan that you are, but like yeah. you, I guess I moved on to other Bonds and discovered I love Connery and, yeah. you know. Dalton and uh, you, you, you know, I've got a Bosnian soft spot too. Uh, <laughs> but there's something about more, and, yeah. and and I can understand why you're saying um, Alan Sons getting into it because it, there is something appealing as a child about the Roger Moore. Bond, there is, you there know? really is, and it's something as I get older, you know, like uh, I liked the Roger Moores when I was younger when I first got into Bond, but then I kind of got, you know, I like, you know, I read the books and it's like, oh, this, you know, Dalton was the one that got me into Bond. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I went back to Taylor Connery's and I was just talking about how great I love from Russia with Love. But there's something, and especially the older I get, the more I go back and watch. Um, actually, just a couple of months ago, I sat down and watched Live and Let Die and For Your Eyes Only, which are my two favorite Roger Moore films. I watched them back to back, basically. I was, you know, had a day off, and I was just like, oh, what a joy, you know? Yeah. Of course, there's flaws all through the film, but what a joy. And that's him. He has a lot of joy. And, and, and I kicked back and watched. Uh, I was actually sick. I was really, really sick the day that uh, Roger Moore died. Mm. And uh, I actually kicked back and watched Spy Love Me. And um, yeah, it's just fantastic. It's just a joy, and it's a, it's a it's a more innocent time, shall we say? Yeah, um, that he comes from. But he really did a lot in saving the franchise, and for a lot of people, Roger Moore was James Bond. You know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So just really sad, basically. Yeah. I know it's got to all come for us at some point, but yeah, that that was uh, definitely the downer mo- for, m- moment for me for the month. Yeah. And what about you? What's fired you up this month? All right, Selin, folks. I've got a feeling this one's going to get long and maybe a bit rambling. So many moons ago, we reviewed X-Men Days of Future Past, and I threw out the observation that they had this sort of cast only a big, silly blockbuster can attract nowadays. A horde of overqualified, award-winning greats gathered together for some poorly executed superhero hokum. It's clear why this happens. Big, silly blockbusters have big budgets to afford a bit of star-powered credibility. And for the actors, it's a decent payday. And more importantly, the promise of guaranteed paydays to come as they've hitched themselves to a franchise. And that gives you the freedom to make other smaller films in the meantime, like Jennifer Lawrence has done while churning out X-Men movies and Hunger Games sequels. Or Chris Hemsworth has done. I mean, no one watches his comedies or his Ron Howard films, right? Uh, But as long as he keeps being Thor, none of that matters. Likewise, I saw a trailer for Logan Lucky with a cheerfully nutty turn from Daniel Craig 
sporting a high-pitched twang. And I thought to myself, ah, this is the Daniel Craig we could have had if he hadn't been chained to Bond. Because Craig seemed happy to just be 007 for a few years there mm. and do nothing else. But the reason this is a tree of woe this month is because this symbiotic relationship seems to me like it's becoming a parasitic relationship. As the blockbusters feel like they're getting worse and the big names certainly aren't getting any smaller. In the last month I saw Michael Fassbender in the terrible new Alien film, Helen Mirren and Charlize Theron in the stupid new Fast and the Furious, uh, Depp and Jeffrey Rush joining Javier Bardem in another overlong undercooked Pirates film, and of course Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe in the disastrous The Mummy. All of these films were woeful, and all of them had great cars who should be doing much better for themselves. And I realised this tree of woe is sounding like one of my, I don't know who I'm putting up, <laughs> trees of woe. So I'm, not, so I'm going to string someone up. I'm going to string up Michael Fassbender. Someone, someone needs to be made an example of, I feel. Ooh. And Fassbender is in the X-Men franchise, the Alien franchise, and even had a go at kickstarting an Assassin's Creed franchise. And that was a horrible, horrible film, I've got to say. So if anyone deserves to roast in the desert sun while buzzards tear at the flesh, as a terrible warning to actors everywhere, it's Michael Fassbender. Bold move, my friend. Well, I, I figure we put someone big up there and yeah, uh, as a warning. It's a real shame because he was by far the best thing in Alien Covenant. Oh, sure, but that's the point of why you get actors like that because yeah. your film is terrible. Yeah. So you get a great actor to, to, to drag people in to watch this rot. Yeah. And I mean, you know, Assassin's Creed, I don't know if we needed a sequel to Creed that, that quickly. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's whitewashing, eh? Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, no, well, that's, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, it's interesting, the state of blockbusters. Uh, has, it's kind of been the thread of this podcast, really, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. The trend now seems to be a lot of really bad blockbusters coming out. Yeah. Can I just say I'm quite um, heartened at uh, I think James Bond's been mentioned in virtually every segment we've done today. <laughs> like, not just by me, yeah, which yeah, is great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and by the way, when I mentioned Daniel Craig in there, I certainly wasn't having a go at him or his Bond no. films. They're actually really good. The thing that bo bugs me is is that he's done so little else except Bond films during his tenure. Yeah. Well, actually, um, Daniel Craig, between, um, between Quantum of Solace in 2008 and Skyfall in 2012, he mm. did a bunch. Yeah, it's he, really after Skyfall. Yeah, yeah. He, he did like Cowboys and Aliens. He did uh, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. He did all these films. And between Skyfall and Spectre, which was, what, three, four years? Yeah. He did nothing at yeah. all. He didn't He didn't do anything. At least now he's been doing, uh, he did Othello on stage. Mm -hmm. um, and he did uh, He did the Soderbergh film so or series. And yeah. so, yeah, so he, he is getting back into it more. But if, I don't know if you've seen the Logan Lucky trailer, but seeing him in that just made me think, oh, you know, I'd almost forgotten that there was another, other strings to his bow, I yeah. guess, or that there are, that he had that range because I'm used to seeing just him as, yeah. as Bond. Yeah. And, and, you know, he's, he's so much more versatile than, than just that. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah. I think they're just kind of like, that, that so immersive for him, you know, yeah. those, those kind of series. And because he's an associate producer, he's just like stacked into it now, so... Everything's reliant on. He's getting paid an obscene amount of money, so it's not like he has to go out and work if he if he no. feels that this is. I think he's only got one more bond in him, so it'll be interesting to see what he does after that. So yeah, yeah. Spoiler alert! All right, Duncan. So, what was your favourite film of the month? Well, there is one film I saw this month with appeal involved, which I can recommend. Get out, um, man! I'm sure you've heard the rave reviews. Well, believe the hype. Jordan Peele's debut is striking, timely, funny, unnerving, and consistently tense. 
It's perfectly cast with Alison Williams, Bradley Whitford, and Catherine Keener all doing great work. But lead, Daniel Kaluuya, is the highlight. Uh, he has the gamut of emotions to run, and one killer scene with Keener is especially memorable. Yeah, that's a great film. That's tremendous. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah it's probably one of my favourite films of the year so far. Hardly recommend that. But look, I'm, I am I saw it this month, obviously, mm-hmm. as well. But I'm not going to recommend that because you've already done the good work for me. But yeah. also, amidst the god-awful blockbusters, I saw a lot of great stuff this month, uh, any one of which could be my favourite film. But since I banged on in the last podcast about the difficulty in Netflix films getting attention, I thought I'd single out a really uh, sweet little flick I could on Netflix. Making Blair's I Don't Feel at Home in This World Anymore. Right. Uh, Melanie Linsky and Elijah Wood make a delightful pair of oddball losers rebelling at a world full of people behaving like dicks, basically, in a comedy that shifts gears into thriller in the third act. Pretty absurd, but it's also never dull, and Linsky and Wood are just wonderful together. It was a delicious surprise of a film for me. Uh, so go fire up your Netflix box thing and give it a go. And I assume that's how Netflix works. Like right. Still not on it. So um, what was the title of that? Yeah, it's one of those titles that I keep having to remind myself. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Cool. Which is a really difficult title to... Uh, I, I wish I'd called it something else. Yeah. Uh, but it's a really nice little watch. Um, I love Linsky in this, and Elijah Wood is just hilarious. He's great fun. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Well, I can't wait it to uh, win the Palme d'Or then. <laughs> uh, it did actually win at Sundance Oh really? Yeah, right. yeah. no, I, I can't remember what award yeah. um, But it won an award at Sundance So it is one of those Netflix films That somehow managed to get a, enough of a screening to win at Sundance But they might do things differently at Sundance I'm not sure what the criteria is Yeah, But it picked up some sort of audience favourite or something award Or, right. or, or best newcomer Because this is Macon Blair's first film no. He's, um, You'll know him as he's in Green Room He is uh, basically the nicest of the Nazis. <laughs> so he's the one who survives in at the end. Right. Uh, and he's also in um, Blue Ruin. He's the, the lead in Blue Ruin, which is a fantastic right. film as well. Yeah. Cool. yeah. Nicest of the Nazis. That's the nicest of the Nazis. <laughs> Even as I said it. I yeah. <laughs> a lovable Nazi. Yeah, a yeah. likeable enough yeah. Nazi, you yeah. know? Yeah. yeah. That's its a, a film title right there. The, the, the Nice Nazi. The Nicest of the Nazis, yeah. 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 That sounds like a children's book. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Except everyone, you know? Like, that's the thing. Um, <laughs> yeah, we're veering off into some dodgy territory yeah. here. Yeah, we'll stop now. Yep. Um, but look, thanks to everyone for listening. Yep. Uh, tune in, well, very shortly for um, part two. Yes. Which is our film autopsy. Yeah, this is the first of these we've ever done. It's where we take a film that failed massively. We try to look at why it failed. And then try to offer some advice on how it could be fixed, potentially. Yeah, so um, this is going to be an interesting segment to do. Yeah. Um, and thanks to Simon for making me watch this film. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> My pleasure. Yeah. Um, so, look, the song we're going out to is, um, it, it had to be Bond-related, because most of this podcast has been beautifully Bond-related. Uh, and this is the classic from The Spy Who Loved Me, Nobody Does It Better. Um, but instead of being done by Carly Simon as it was originally, this is a live version by Radiohead. And uh, I just love that um, Tom York refers to this as the sexiest song ever written, mm. um, which is, you know, hard to disagree with. So um, thanks to Sir Roger Moore. And thanks to for all of you for listening. And um, tune in for the uh, film Autopsy, which will be coming up right now. And uh, we'll see you all next month. See you later. Cheers. This is the sexiest song that was ever written. Nobody does
Father, for I have sinned. That's putting it mildly, 007.